That's uh, John 16, starting at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So that's the book of Jude, and we're starting at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of of 
ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, um, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What do we do when Little Red Riding Hood comes to church? Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the children's nursery story. I'm told the original grim fairy tale is considerably more gruesome than the somewhat tamed version I was told as a child. But the basic kind of plot line is small girl is sent to visit grandma, small girl travels to grandma's cottage through the wood, small girl is intercepted by wolf, wolf makes casual inquiries, Wolf races on ahead to Grandma's cottage, and this is where it gets a little more eccentric. Wolf swallows Grandma whole. Wolf describes self as Grandma in Grandma's bed. Small girl arrives. What big eyes you got, Grandma. And so it goes on. But what are we to do when Grimm's fairy tale, Little Red Riding Hood, actually takes place before us in church? Now, when I say Little Red Riding Hood, I don't mean Little Red Riding Hood herself. And if you happen to have come to church this evening in a coat and, red, and it's red and it's got a little hood and, uh, and you're slightly smaller stature, this isn't actually about you. Don't, don't panic. We're not zoning in in that way. But when the wolf comes to town, what to do? You know, Jesus warned that they would. Peter, Paul, John, James all insisted that false teachers would arise within the church. Beware wolves in sheep's clothing, says the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Now you can see from verse 1 that the letter we're going to be considering for the next four weeks is written by Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude declares himself in the verse to be the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. James was the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. James himself was Jesus' brother. So Jude was at least the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems most likely that the letter was written at and around the same time as to Peter, Peter's second letter. And if that's the case, then it's a letter written before the mid-60s AD when Peter was martyred. 
And this makes it really very interesting indeed. That within 30 years of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, alongside the rapid establishment of the Church of Christ, already there were wolves come to town. But what are we to do when Little Red Riding Hood comes to church, or at least the plot of Little Red Riding Hood? You can see from the earliest point that Jude had actually wanted to write a different letter. Just look at verse 3 for a moment. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So you might call the letter of Jude the letter that shouldn't ever have been written. And Jude considers he has to write it. He wants to write a longer, kind of encouraging letter. But he has, if you like, to dash this letter off before the post leaves to get it out to the church. And which church, we just don't know. And the reason is there in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. What are we to do when certain people creep in unnoticed, ungodly people who teach sensuality in place of morality and deny the doctrine of the truth of Jesus? Well, I want us to take two very simple points. We've got four weeks to work at this, so we've got plenty of time, and I just want to get to the end of verse 4. We might not even get there this afternoon. But here is the first point, that there is a body of saving truth that establishes God's church. And if we can get hold of this, it will make the rest of the letter so much easier for us. There is a body of saving truth that establishes God's church, we must contend for it. And then we'll go on, if we've got time, to look at the presence of secret agents who infiltrate God's church. Verse 3. I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, it's important we realize that when he says the faith, he's not talking about my faith. This is not something subjective and individual to each one of us. I popped in to see my predecessor, Dick Lucas, yesterday evening uh, at four o'clock-ish, and uh, I said, I'm about to start a series on Jude. He was absolutely delighted that we were going to spend four weeks looking. He's now 97. And uh, I said, well, what do you think are the key things? He pointed out this as one of the key verses in the whole letter. And he said this, it's not my faith, it's the faith. And then he said, I can only have my faith if we have the faith. The faith once for all, delivered. And then that once for all, it's not once for all people. It's easy to understand it like that, but that's not actually what the word means. It is once for all time. The word is hapax. It's a reference to a time reference to a one-off event that is not repeated. A one-off, one-time revelation. The faith, once for all, delivered. Close to a technical term, that word delivered, it speaks of an official, authoritative 
handing over of something, a recorded delivery. It comes to the door. You get your photo taken, and you also have to sign on the dotted line, once for all delivered to the saints, and the saints are the people of God. So then, because Christianity is an historical religion bound into and defined by specific events in time and space... Therefore, as one writer put it, Christianity is inescapably tied to the particularity of the incarnation. Let me unpack that because that's not easy to get hold of. The very specific and particular things that happened when Jesus came into the world and revealed previously unknown and unseen truth from God. Christianity is inescapably tied in to the events and the given explanation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about Jesus' teaching. We're talking about Jesus' miracles. We're talking about Jesus' death. We're talking about Jesus' resurrection and the witness and the words of the original hearers and their circle is absolutely determines the body of truth once for all delivered to the saints, because it was a one-off event, the coming of the Lord Jesus. He's only come once. He only needed to come once. He only died once. He only needed to die once. He only rose once. He only needed to rise once. And so that whole package of events and their explanation is what Jude refers to as the faith, objective truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. So there is a body of saving truth that establishes God's church, a recognized group of teachers appointed by Jesus. There is an authenticated group of apostles authorized by Jesus with his training, his commission to record and to instruct us. And it is this body of truth on which the church is founded. Now, this is so important and so countercultural because it's so against what you get taught at school and at university and so forth that I think it's really worth us pausing for a few moments and just chewing over because it's foundational to the whole letter. I mean, I asked for John 16 to be read. Just flick back there for a moment. Keep a finger in Jude and flick back to John chapter 16. Here is the Lord Jesus the night before he was crucified. And here he is speaking to his apostles, this group of authorized, trained teachers. And look at what he says, page 1088, John 16, verse 12. I still have many, more, many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into how much truth? All the truth. For he won't speak on his own authority, but whatever he is, he will speak, and he will declare to you, that's the apostles, the things that are to come. So not just truth past, but truth future. Everything that you need to know about God from God, revealed in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, now taught to the instructed and authorized apostles. Verse 14, he will glorify me, for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The truth and all of the truth given to the apostles, the faith, once for all 
delivered. Now, take hold of your service sheet. It'll save you chasing around the, uh, the Bible. If you haven't got it with you for a moment, hand me yours, would you please? Um, Fred, thanks very much. That's, uh, no, no, not that one. Never mind. Forget about it. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by the Son. You see, it's the past tense. In these last days, he has spoken. There is a body of truth once for all delivered. And flick over in your Bibles to page 1224 for the last cross-reference here as we (coughs) consider this. Page 1224 to Peter. It's just before Jude, so just go to Jude and flick back a couple of pages. For we do not, did not follow cleverly devised myths, verse 16 of chapter 1. Here is Peter, the apostle, writing, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Look at verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. We have something more sure the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay careful attention. So from the very beginning, through the teaching of Jesus, through the teaching of the apostles themselves, here in the letter of Jude to the church, there is the faith, once for all time, delivered to the saints. There is a body of truth, saving truth, that establishes the churches. And the church has always believed that. Do you know, as early as 180 AD, a bloke called Irenaeus wrote this, it's not possible that the Gospels be either more or fewer than they are. For since there are four zones of the world in which we live and four principal winds, north, east, south, and west, the pillar and the ground of the church is the Gospel, and it is fitting that we should have four pillars What he's saying is there are four Gospels. Here is the truth. This is the pillar. This is the ground on which the church is founded. There is the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. Look back at Jude, would you? Chapter 1. There is only one chapter. And verse 3. I found it necessary to write, appealing to you. Notice he's writing to all the church. It's not just to the rector. It's not just to the... To the, um, to the trainers in the church. I found it necessary to write to every single one of you, those of you in the sixth form, those of you at college, you know, those of you in small groups, every single one of us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, I realize that for our age, this really is incredibly hard to get hold of because we've been brought up to believe that all truth is relative, You have your truth. I have my truth. Each culture has its truth. No one dare suggest that anyone else's truth is anything other than one view of a particular event. I can add my take on the truth to the truth, but it's only my take. And actually, it may be more valuable than the truth that I'm adding to. And what is more, people will suggest it's impossible to establish the real truth of a matter Because each witness to the event has his or her own particular take on the event they're recording. Now, of course, that view that there's no such thing as truth is itself 
a truth claim. And when they come to you at school and say, well, there's no such thing as truth, oh, well, then what you're saying can't be true, you say to them, I hope. It's actually a sinister power play. But we've been brought up to believe such things. And Jesus challenges this 21st century power play with all of its sinister connotations. Absolutely. And he says, remember before Pilate, for this reason I was born, for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Anyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. And this absolute truth of the gospel, once for all delivered, you know, it can be verified. After all, there are multiple sources for the faith once for all delivered. The four gospel writers, they are what you might call able to be triangulation points on one another as you take events that they all describe separately, independently in many cases, and then check them against one another. Ah, yeah, this is true. And then there are the early letters, most of them written before 64, 65 AD, very early after the events, talking about precisely the same things that the gospel writers are talking about, further triangulation points. And then all of the sources of truth, once for all delivered, they they fit into this great matrix of the Old Testament with all that the Old Testament says about the coming truth, and they fit and match further triangulation points. And then the multiple sources have fixed historical and meteorological, botanical and archaeological, sociological details that fit with the dates and times an understanding of the age in which they're written. And then there are sources outside of the Bible that speak of Jesus having come. No self-respecting historian would deny the reality that Jesus existed. And then there's the simple logic of it, that if God has broken into his world and revealed his saving truth, then it is the original eyewitnesses authorized by God who are the trustworthy sources who we can have confidence in. And so says Jude, I thought it necessary urgently to write to you that you might contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. I don't know if you listen to the Rest is History podcast. It's a great podcast. I listen to it in the bath. If you're wondering why I'm looking quite so sort of shriveled, it's because I like listening, not a whole episode every time. That would be a full hour. It's a little bit excessive on the heating bills and all the rest of it. But their latest one has been on Auschwitz. My grandfather was one of the first people into Belsen, an eyewitness. And do I believe his testimony? Well, what's so interesting, if you listen to those, uh, Tom Holland and and, um, uh, the other guy, their podcasts, is a lot of people, when it was first reported, just couldn't believe, they wouldn't believe it. They couldn't believe anything so extraordinary. But then one testimony, and then another testimony, and then another testimony, and then, yes, true, true truth. And what you have in your hands here is the collated testimony of trustworthy eyewitnesses who have delivered to us the faith once delivered to the saints. 
there is a body of truth, objective and absolute truth, by which God's church is established, you must contend. And you must contend, because so much hangs on it. I wonder if you noticed in the earliest verses of the letter, verses 1, 2, and 3, just how much hangs on this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. How can you be called to belong to the living God? What a glorious thing to know that you're called to belong to the living God in a world where there is so much uncertainty and insecurity. What a glorious thing to know that you're called. What a wonderful thing to know that you are loved, loved by the creator of the universe, those who are called beloved in God the Father and then kept secure for eternity by God the Father, God the Son, and the God the Holy Spirit. Each one of these, such precious truths, but you <coughs> can only know these things because of the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. And then look at verse 2. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Well, what is this mercy that comes from God? Well, you can only know about it because of the faith once delivered to the saints. What is this peace with God such that I can be friends with God? You can only know of it because of the faith once delivered to the saints. And what of this love that comes from God and is multiplied to us from God himself? Well, we can only know of it because of the faith once delivered to the saints. And isn't it wonderful that Jude, the brother of Jesus Christ, writes to whoever these people are, and it's us now, about our common salvation. So you and I are knit together into this glorious salvation where we can call ourselves called, beloved by God, kept for Jesus Christ. I wonder if you grasp just what is at stake when it comes to contending for the faith once delivered to the saints. You know, I used to come to St. Helens back in the 1980s. In those days, really, I think it would be fair to say there were just three or four churches in London where you could go, well-known churches in central London, where you could go and be absolutely confident of hearing unadulterated the faith once delivered to the saints. They, they were dark days. I sometimes refer to them as the darkest days of the 20th century. Many of the social problems in our country today come as a result of the loss of the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. But today, while well, gradually church after church reawakening and called back to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But you know, if you want a church to send your grandchildren to, I mean, maybe you haven't thought about grandchildren just recently, but if you want a church to send your grandchildren to, you must contend for the faith once delivered. If you want people to be called and loved and kept by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, you will need to contend for the faith once for all delivered 
to the saints. Do you know, there's going to be a battle if you are going to see people experiencing mercy and peace and love from God. If there's to be a common salvation that we're all going to be part of, Jude says, we'll have to contend for it. We'll have to fight for it. It will be a battle. Well, we're pretty nearly out of time. I can imagine somebody saying, why all this talk of contending? I just want to dip into verse 4, and we'll come back to it big time next week. And here we see that there are always going to be secret agents who will infiltrate the church. You must contend. Verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, there are five major sections to this letter. In each section, Jude details the activity and the appearance of these certain people. So, verse 4, certain people. Verse 8, these people. Verse 10, these people. Verse 12, these. Verse 16, these people. The suggestion here is that they've crept in. They've come in without anybody noticing them. The word translates a word that speaks of settling in alongside. It's why I talk about Little Red Riding Hood, because the wolf kind of sneaks in. Entering by stealth, slipping in by the side door. One translation, they have come in stealthily. Another, they have crept in unawares. And in verse 12, Jude speaks to them as hidden reefs at your love feast. You know what a reef is? It lies under the surface of the water. And so even as they're celebrating the Lord's Supper... Those who have crept in unawares, hidden reefs on which shipwrecks will be made. And they have clearly really settled in, these certain people. They're part of the furniture, these certain people. They are well-known, these certain people, well-liked, well-established, well-respected even. They may even wear a dog collar or a mitre, that's a bishop's hat, They may have been given preferment. They may even lead a group. But the detail of these certain people's activities is given in two simple statements at the end of the verse. Do you see it there? They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So it is both sensuality morality, and doctrine, lawlessness. The word is unbridled lust, outrageous conduct. It carries sense of sexual overtones. In a parallel passage in 2 Peter, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. And here their lustful and sexual lack of restraint is promoted as they pervert the grace of God. Just look at verse 4. It's very striking, isn't it? 
They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And that it is so interesting. It suggests they talk about God and they talk about the gospel. It suggests they talk about grace. They use all the kind of language that you and I use. They speak of the same things that we speak of. And this is, of course, what makes them so hard to spot. God is love. They say God loves us all. They say, God offers free forgiveness. They say, come to God in the name of Jesus, and free forgiveness comes free of charge. Don't worry about sin. Don't bother with change. Come to God in the name of Jesus and keep on living with no alteration. They are treating the fact that God graciously accepts sinners as an excuse for shameless sin. One writer puts it like this. They have accepted the indicative of pardon and forgotten the imperative of holiness. Oh, God's grace. What they're doing is actually playing off one aspect of the character of God, God's grace, against another aspect of the character of God, God's holiness. They're setting off the attribute of grace against the attribute of holiness. And because God forgives sins, they say, therefore anything goes. Now, I was going to call this cheap grace. And you might have heard that phrase before. Oh, grace, and therefore just live the way you want. But I'm not sure that's quite right if you look at the end of the verse. Do you see? They deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I think I'd rather call it idolatrous grace. They deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Their ungodliness works itself out, not only in their behavior, but also in their doctrine. You might even argue that their doctrine drives their ungodliness, or possibly that their ungodliness drives their doctrine. They want to live sinful lives, And so they adapt their belief system accordingly. They adapt their belief system accordingly. Inevitably, they live sinful lives. And so you can imagine them saying something like this. You know, Jesus was a wonderful man, but he's not our only Lord and Master. Uh, Jesus showed us so many good things, but there are many other good teachers I love the Sermon on the Mount. Much of what is said there is wonderful, but we, <laughs> we live in a different age. Times have changed. There are other voices, each to his own. <laughs> Let's walk together in faith and love, regardless of how we express ourselves. There are many ways of living, lots of different views on the matter, multiple ideas as to how we should behave sexually. Did their wrong thinking lead to their long, wrong living? Or did their wrong living lead to their wrong thinking? I think the answer is probably yes. Both. Both appear to take place simultaneously. For once we deny the reality of an objective teaching of God that comes from outside the faith, once delivered to the saints, why all we're left with is the subjective teaching of man. No revelation, just speculation.
And because we're now making it up as we go along, within the cage, if you like, of human existence, with no voice of absolute authority from outside, then gradually anything goes. It feels good to me. Well, I should do it. I really love him. It's fine. I couldn't help myself. Well, there's so much more to say. We're out of time. But the essence of these early verses is Jude waking us up to the need to contend. There is a body of saving truth that establishes the church. There will always be secret agents who infiltrate the church. And I hope already, if you've got your eyes even half open to what's going on in the wider world here in Britain, particularly in the Church of England, you'll be able to see that this letter is going to be extraordinarily important to us as we galvanize one another to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Everything hangs on it. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, how we praise you that you have declared yourself once and for all time in the person of Jesus. We pray, our Father, that you would help each of us to contend for the faith once delivered. We thank you that through this truth we can know that we are called, that we are loved, that we are kept, that mercy and peace and love are multiplied to us through this glorious truth of the gospel, that this is saving truth. We pray that you would strengthen and galvanize us to contend for it in our age. In Jesus' name, amen.